0: You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to this first episode of the podcast. Before we begin, I do have one quick announcement. I am teaching a four-week course for the Center for Bible Study, which is a big reason why I'm doing this podcast is to support the work that I'm doing as the director for the center. This course is called One People in Christ. It's a four week study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I'm excited. This is the first of several pilot courses that I'm gonna be doing on William Jessup's campus. Um, in kind of a ramp up for a full launch of the center on campus in the fall. So really exciting stuff coming up. What it means broadly is that we're going to be able to do a lot of these classes, make uh, biblical studies education widely available to the church, which is our mission. So I'm really excited about that. If you're interested in this course, I'll put the link in the description where you can link to register. As I said, it's four weeks, four Tuesdays. So it's March 14th, 21st, 28th, and April 4th. Tuesdays from 7 to 830. And if you're on the fence about it, there's different options for you. So if you want to be there in person, fantastic. Love to have you in person. If not, not a problem. You can join us via Zoom. Or if that time doesn't work for you, but you really like to receive the content for the class, still go ahead and register. There's an option to receive the um, recordings for all four weeks of the class. And I've already heard word some churches are going to be using these recordings for small group conversations, which I think is really awesome and exciting. And I'm ha- happy to hear that it, it can be used in that way. So I'd love, love, love to have you at the class. Please consider joining. And without further ado, let's jump into this first episode. Well, here we are. Um, I'm so excited to, uh, well, really excited <laughs> to begin this um, new venture of podcasting and, um, Yeah, to just invite you into a little bit of what I'm doing in my study of scripture um, and in particular, my role as um, director for the Center of Bible Study, which is a new venture that I'm really excited about. And it's part of the reason behind this podcast. We'll be talking more about that. But I thought I'd begin just by kind of introducing myself. Who am I? Uh, what, what's my story, what animates me today. So you can have a little bit of a sense of whether you want to listen to me or not. <laughs> and then we'll, um, we'll be discussing uh, what, what, we're, what I'm doing with the Center of Bible Study, and in particular, why I'm focused on this theme, On the Way, uh, why I think it's so important for how we approach the Bible and how we think about the life, the life of faith. So uh, just to begin a little bit about myself, I did not grow up in a Christian home. Didn't grow up really reading the Bible. Um, I grew up in a secular Jewish home in Montreal, Canada, or at least that's where I was. That's where I was born. Um, my parents got divorced at an early age, and so my mom relocated us to the to the states, um, first to f- Miami, Florida, and then after Hurricane Andrew. For those of you who remember, there was an early 90s big hurricane in Miami. Um, that kind of prompted the move to leave, and so we ended up all the way on the other side of the country in Northern California in uh, Sacramento. When I think about why we ended up in Sacramento, I'm not exactly sure, other than there's a school that my mom really wanted us to attend. Both of my parents have been a little bit unconventional in certain ways, and uh, my mom wanted us to go to a, a Waldorf school, and I won't get into what that is, but for those that may be interested, you can look it up. It's a very different kind of unconventional way of doing school. Um, so yeah, my parents were not into, let's say, traditional religion, but very, very interested in spirituality growing up. And so I was exposed to a lot of different, um, ways of thinking, ways of thinking about the world, I suppose. Um, I did become a Christian in kind of my preteen years, and it's still hard for me to this day to wrap my mind around what exactly happened or what that looks like, um, I was at a, an event that, that friends invited us to, uh, very charismatic. I didn't have the words to know what it was at the time, but looking back on it now, it was very, very kind of charismatic altar call type thing, um, slaying in the spirit. For those of you that don't know, that's like when they put their hands on your head and the power of the spirit knocks you over kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, I don't really recall anything that was said all I remember about that night is that I, for the first time in my life, or at least first time in a very profound, real way, uh, experienced God's love, and that sort of—that's sort of what began the journey for me. Uh, that, if I mark where I became a Christian, I would point to that um, night. I didn't really understand my faith, and I wasn't really brought into a space to help me do that. We kind of bounced in and out of church. Um, I had different experiences of god that kind of carried me through my teen years but i didn't i should say i wasn't very interested in church or christianity uh it wasn't that compelling to me uh, i was more interested in sports first baseball than basketball and that was really my world um, so i didn't really think about my faith much and to be honest, I didn't really see Christianity as a very attractive way of living. It seemed to me to be more about what happens to you when you die. And um, I knew I didn't wanna to go to the bad place. So <laughs> that was part of the motivation. Um, and then also I, I just think that I, you could say I maybe misunderstood my faith or maybe I understood the nature of the faith communities that I had been exposed to at that point, which is really the reduction of Christianity to a series of do's and don'ts, right? Rules, kind of things you follow. I remember when I was a college pastor years later it was the first church job I got, also the last church job I got, I don't know what that says, but um, I would ask students, you know, kind of how are you doing in your faith? What is, you know, wh- what, is your, what does your walk look like? Or some sort of uh, introductory kind of Christian ease that we use in church. and. Um, kind of invariably students would share to me the way they would narrate their faith was very similar to the way I narrated my faith before I started to understand um, understand it better, which is that, yeah, there's certain things that I don't do that other kids or other people my age do, right? Sex, uh, drugs, drinking, these kind of things. And um, when I went off to college, I remember, you know, kind of telling God that... Um, Just give me some time (laughs) to be a normal human and then you can have me later on in life because that was sort of the way I understood my faith was just like um, not not a lot there, um, just a bunch of things you don't do. And so that that kind of gives you an insight into where I was prior to really becoming interested in what it means to follow jesus and what it means to read scripture and study it right not i mean for me it's both it's my academic work i study it academically but i also read the text as god's word inspired for the people of god today uh as throughout all generations so um so how i came to that point for me it was really kind of hitting rock bottom god god gave me the the leeway, I guess. Uh, He, in in a way, uh, for better or for worse, answered my prayer with an okay to kind of let me go off and do my own thing. And so for me, it took really kind of hitting rock bottom, uh, athletics falling apart for me, um, relationships falling apart, everything that I kind of might seek uh, as an area to put my identity and had to kind of fall apart. And it was at that point where, I really began to like providentially was brought into a church community in a space where um, I was being encouraged in my faith and really being shown for the first time what it would look like to read the Bible. And that was really transformative for me. That became um, a kind of a turning point in my life And one past my college pastor in particular, um, just very grateful for him and his commitment uh his willingness to, to just take time out to show interest in me and encourage me in my in my journey and my faith and as a result i decided to um, enroll in college at William Jessup that's actually where i teach now it's kind of funny i graduated from here back in 2009 and went on a long journey east 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 and now i finally made my se- made my way back west and we were settled back in northern California um, but for me you know this was the first place where Along with being supported in church, I was exposed to a way of reading the Bible in a rich kind of in its historical context, but also in the broader context of the life of faith. And for me, that was just I I just something clicked. And I knew that if I could, um, I'd want to spend the rest of my life studying the Bible, teaching about the Bible and so on and so forth. Uh, I did not have any idea how hard the road would be <laughs> to getting in a place where i had the credentials kind of and and the job opportunity to do what i do now um and that had i known what the journey looked like you know there's days where I, if i'm being honest i probably wouldn't have taken it um because it's not it's not a glam- glamorous <laughs> way to live and there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of pain to get to this point but um but i am glad that the lord's brought me here so after college Um, i thought the next thing you do if you want to be either a pastor or a professor or something i I still didn't know what i wanted to do was i enrolled in seminary i went to fuller seminary Um, they used to have an extension campus in sacramento area and that was really nice i got to know a lot of wonderful people there a lot of wonderful professors it was kind of the next step for me of thinking about studying the bible academically and it was in that context where I realized or I had an inkling that maybe I would want to be a Bible professor. And that was something that some of my professors were affirming in me. Still didn't have a sense of how hard that journey would be. And um, yeah, whenever I talk to people about who who are maybe interested in an academic study of the Bible, I always feel this great burden to try to uh, dissuade them or at the very least give them a full picture of what the journey looks like. Um, and then, of, of course, leave it into, up you know, into their discernment. And um, because I, I do think there are some people God calls <laughs> to this work, but it is it is arduous, um, no doubt. So I, I went to Fuller, graduated from there, still had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I just started trying things. Um, I started teaching some classes as an adjunct professor. Uh, I started working as a college pastor. And I also had the sense like, gosh, I, I don't know that I'm really prepared for PhD level work. My languages are okay, they're not great. That's the feeling I think a lot of people have when they're coming out of seminary. And so I enrolled in the classics department at UC Davis, which was like one of the biggest blessings. Um, the faculty there really just took me in and got to spend a couple years just taking Greek and Latin classes there. And that for me was hugely transformative Um, It was a great opportunity to make some wonderful relationships, but also just to really dive down in the languages, it it helped me tremendously. So I was running all over the place is the idea for a couple years after after Fuller, thinking about what the next step would be. And, um, you know, I when it came time to apply to Ph.D. schools, I think I did what a lot of people do, which is just you throw out applications everywhere. And um, the first one that I got a yes to and that I got a scholarship to was actually one that I barely had on my radar at the time, which was the University of St. Andrews. Um, And that turned out to be a tremendous um, blessing. I got to um, work with my my supervisor there, Elizabeth Shively. Um, She's just an incredible scholar, incredible person. And I had the privilege of being actually her first doctoral student. So I got a lot of attention, a lot of, um, a lot of help. And um, I, one of the things that I appreciate so much about her and that I, I try to emulate with students is she had just this really keen ability to listen well and then to kind of draw out of you where you were trying to go as you're fumbling over your words. And so I really, really, really appreciated that about her. The other thing that was really cool about being at St. Andrews, well, there are a lot of cool things, the community, the people, everything. Um, one of the reasons that I got interested in academic study of the Bible, as I, I know a lot of other people, this is the case, is the works of, of, of N.T. Wright, of Tom Wright. And um, when I was there at St. Andrews, there was an opening for um, his research assistant. And I thought, man, wouldn't that be crazy? So I went ahead and applied for it and um, I got it. And I spent a couple years as as Tom's research assistant, which was just an incredible um, blessing, uh, very empowering. Um, he's someone that I just greatly admire, and so to have somebody like that affirm your giftings and 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 really value your opinion as he's writing books, he's asking me questions and what I think, and we're having back and forth conversations, and it was just really. Um, like, it was it's a tremendous gift. It was a really, really rich time. The hard part about being at St. Andrews wasn't really St. Andrews. St. Andrews was wonderful, um, but uh, we moved there, my wife and I, and our, we had we have four kids now. We had two kids at the time, and our youngest was eight months old, Noah. And um, he just started to have tons of health complications there in St. Andrews and we were kind of wrestling through all types of different things, right? And it took us years and years. Really, my wife um, was doing intense amounts of research. I'm sitting there writing my dissertation sometimes at night and she's sitting there on the computer, uh, you know, till late hours in the morning, researching, finding doctors and so on and so forth. And so that is, it's funny for us, like along with the typical uncertainties of PhD life, am I gonna get a job? How do I pay for this? How are we going to do, you know, kind of do life? We were really that was the primary thing that we were wrestling with that whole time. And so it kind of there's kind of two sides to St. Andrews for us in our story, the side of adventure, enjoying life there, along with the the questions of doubts and uncertainties. But the real thing that kind of hung over us the whole time. Was um, was was my son's health, our son's health, and you know, trying to figure that out, and really asking a lot of questions, kind of like, why, Lord, and how, and what do we what do we do? And that's been a journey that we've been on for well, ten years now. Uh, he's, he's ten, and we're still on that journey. There's been a lot of wonderful breakthroughs, but it's it's been challenging, um, both with health issues as well as some you know aspects of neurodiversity and things of this nature, and so. Yeah, it's been, you know, for us, I think there we, we probably went through three years, the first few years where we weren't even really able to be a part of church um, or, or really be involved in service because it, he took up both of our full kind of attention uh, in those spaces. And that was something that, to be honest, had never been on my radar before. And I know it's something that a lot of people wrestle with and um, a lot of parents are wrestling with. Is you know how inclusive our church spaces for families with uh, people who are neuro- neurodiverse and people who have different uh, different disabilities. Um, churches are not often all that inclusive when it comes to those kind of things, and so that's been something that I've been thinking about too through through our experience. Um, so we we. Um, Finished our time in St. Andrews. It really was a wonderful time, although it was beset by some of these these challenges. And where where were we going to go next? Well, as anybody knows in the in the academic game, uh, it's very very hard to come by. Uh, jobs are very hard to come by. Even non tenure track jobs, tenure track jobs feel felt you know almost impossible. So you know I'm throwing out applications, but I'm an ABD PhD. You know you're getting your your um, your application is just getting thrown in the bin before it even gets looked at likely so um i i was um, fortunate enough to find a kind of postdoctoral position at a school in germany uh, goethe university which is in frankfurt am Main. i did not know there are actually two frankfurts in germany this is the frankfurt that most people know of <laughs> it's a major uh like airport hub in germany and um fairly large city um so i, I began doing research there and I was supposed to be there for three years, and it just was not working out. The job was okay, Uh, I could have made it work for three years, but the big issue was my son's health continued to get worse. It was just, we were in a really, really tough spot as a family, and you know, lots of nights of crying, not knowing what to do, um, really just questioning everything. I remember that was kind of the lowest of the low for us, and so I was, I knew that I had to find a job somewhere. So I'm applying to jobs again. Again, you know, the thing is, is you're, you're mostly getting rejections. I, I realized very quickly that my life academic life is a long series of no's punctuated by an occasional yes, which you have to celebrate <laughs> because they're not easy to come by. So when you get a yes, it's always good to celebrate and uh, rejoice Rejoice with other people. When you have academics on your social media posting about publications or other things that, that they're doing, one way to look at it cynically is you could say, oh, they're just showing off or whatever, but realize that behind that, there's, there's, a, there's a story there. And that person has probably heard no, as, three times, four times, five times, as many times as they've heard, yes. And so just give them a little love sometimes, right? Um, so I, yeah, we, I was looking for jobs, right? And um, I, I made it to the final two uh, at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, which I had no idea. I've never been to Michigan before, had never been to Michigan before. Um, Only thing I knew about Grand Rapids was the publishing, because if you cite books written by Baker, Zondervan, or Erdmans, uh, a couple others, you write the name Grand Rapids quite a bit. So I'd heard of Grand Rapids before, but that was the extent of it. It was really insane how this worked out. My wife and I, we decided, we found a specialist in New York. So we flew from Germany to New York. We used all of our savings, emptied out all our savings. We're going into debt at this point, right? Um, to take my son to this, uh, to this specialist. While we're at the doctor's appointment, I get a call from Grand Rapids Seminary and it's the, the, the dean of the seminary and he said, you've made it to the final two, we wanna have you out to campus. So we fly back to Germany and a day or two days later, I get back on a plane, fly out to Michigan, have my interviews. This community was just wonderful. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the colleagues, my student, the students there, incredible. Um, I, I there's, there's no way I get it, right? And then we did end up getting the job. And so, um, so yeah, it was a matter of resettling from Germany to Michigan and settling in there. And um, when I came to Grand Rapids, I remember telling my colleague at the time, Tim Gombas, I told him, man, I don't know if I'm gonna have anything to offer these students. I'm, I'm drained, like I'm spiritually broken. I feel like I've gotten gone through the meat grinder um so it was just really we just come out of a really low point like st andrews was was hard you know I, I didn't mention this but my wife and moved home with our kids for a year um because we just didn't know if we could do it anymore and so yeah st andrews was hard germany was even harder uh, around the, the health issues and um and so yeah, I, I just didn't I didn't know what I had to offer. And the students at GRTS just really embraced me and that time I really regained a sense of my vocation and actually more clarity because I think coming out of my PhD work at St. Andrews and then in Germany, I really saw myself on a trajectory to being a researcher, right? I, I do, I write articles, I write books for other academics. And that's something that I love to do and I want to continue to do. It's hard to find space to do it, but I love it. Um, but I realized like being rooted in this kind of faith community and and really having the opportunity to be meeting with students and teaching students who are coming from different faith traditions. Um, we had a growing uh, uh, urban cohort program. And so um, getting to to uh, have Black pastors in my class, uh, pastors who'd been in ministry 30, 40 years. That really, for me, was transformational. And I began to see the classroom as just this wonderful experimental space to come together around God's word, around scripture, and and ask difficult questions and think about how the text is really speaking to us today. And um, and that just that became so rich, so wonderful. It was this incredible gift that I, I didn't see coming. And, um, it really helped me regain my sense of, of vocation that this is what I set out to do in the beginning was to, to be a teacher of the word of God for the people of God. And here I am getting to do it. And I thought, I thought, you know, I don't know about if I'm a, a fit, how well I fit in with, with West Michigan culture and all this, but, um, but I just loved GRTS. That was kind of like my home when I was there. And so I, I thought, you know, man, I could see myself here for 20, 30 years, maybe my whole career, if, if it stays like this. And unfortunately, it didn't. <laughs> as we know with um, with the kind of Christian higher ed, there's all kinds of things that are happening, changing factors and such. And so there was a major um, cultural shift at the school. And um, one that's probably predictable, Looking at looking back on it, as I've kind of had some space and some distance to kind of reflect on, this is the tug and pull of many, unquote evangelical institutions uh, that are facing the current climate Um, it's not a direction that i would go and i I, that i i can't really support or or affirm and so i began to think about you know i think i gotta i think it's time to move on and as painful as that was and as sad as i was to leave the students at grts because i just loved 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 my students I realized that, um, yeah, that I, that I needed to, to have a change of scenery, that the kind of the we, we all, I think, as faculty and, and some administrators who had been there went through a, a year of pretty incredible trauma, <laughs> I would just say, of 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 uh, just a lot of institutional and spiritual abuse. And so um, I needed to move on from that. Um, and many of us did. And so, um, yeah, I looked for for jobs. And again, the Lord provided in an incredible way. Um, I would never have thought I would have the opportunity to be back here at my alma mater. Um, But here I am. I'm back at uh, back at William Jessup and um, excited to be. Yeah, excited to be a part of what's happening at the school. I mean, it's it's different for me. I spent most of my time teaching seminarians, so adult learners, and now I'm kind of transitioning back into thinking about teaching undergraduates which is presents a different set of challenges and um, so I feel like post-COVID has also introduced a whole set of challenges so navigating educational space still still navigating evangelical educational spaces um, post-COVID is, is interesting and so it's something that I'm still kinda working through to be honest and trying to figure out how to do it well um, so that's a little bit about me yeah I I'm very passionate about studying the bible you heard a little bit about my my journey some of the ups but also some of the downs Um, i've learned over the years and in particular i kind of learned to embrace this at grts that um, part of who i am is i'm a person that likes to be open and honest and vulnerable about life and I, i like to invite other people into that so it's part of why i'm sharing with you some of my um, some of my story and some of the things that um, some of the places where I've I still feel deep pain also and that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of working through. So um, why this podcast? Right. Um, and what can kind of what can you expect in, um, in if you want to tune in and listen? Uh, I when I came back to, here to Jessup, um, still kind of figuring out like what is what does God have for me kind of vocationally? What, what am I doing here? Uh, that's a, honestly a question I've been asking myself a lot. Like, what am I doing? And I'm still figuring that out. But one of the things that, um, I've been kind of brought into, which I feel very passionate about and very excited about is the center for Bible study. Um, this is something that my, a mentor of mine, a dear friend of mine, um, Reverend Peter Rogers. He was a Fuller professor and uh, now he's a retired rector from St. Andrew's Episcopal Church. This is an initiative he started over a decade ago to bring kind of a seminary level education into the church. And um, and so when I started meeting with him here, he kind of was recruiting me. I didn't realize it at first, but he recruited me in so that he can kind of step into a new role um, and uh, usher me in as the new director of the center. And that's great. Um, I, 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 love him for it and I'm really excited to, for the challenge and the opportunity. Um, I think why I'm so excited about the center of Bible, uh, for center for Bible study is as I was in the seminary context, I'm just getting more and more of a sense that we are entering into a new phase of theological education. I think, uh, a theological education that is more oriented towards the majority world um, and a theological education even in places that have been very committed to you know institutional credentials and things like that um, which i don't think are bad they shouldn't they shouldn't go away i i I think seminaries are a wonderful place but i don't think seminary is for everyone and i don't think it's possible for everyone and i think there's a lot of in a lot of ways the church is kind of either not seen value in theological education or kind of farmed it out and so why I'm excited about Center of Study of Bible is it's kind of a more of a grassroots approach to theological education again it's not a replacement for what churches are doing or what seminaries are doing but it's kind of a middle way for people that are looking to go a bit deeper in their study of the Bible um, wanting to get a little bit of a, an academic approach to the Bible, but also one that's deeply practical and, and relevant to their everyday lives. So I'm excited to take this over. The, what, what it's going to look like for me is I'll be teaching classes. Um, Jessup is actually partnering with us, so I'm going to be teaching classes at Jessup that will be both in person and virtual so people can zoom in and we'll be doing they'll all be recorded as well so if there's something that's interesting to you um, you'll be able to get those recordings and um, the, again the design the heart behind it is to just make high quality biblical studies available in the church to partner with churches so another thing that we'll be doing and we'll be continuing because this is the legacy of the center is teaching classes in churches churches that want to uh, partner with us so currently i teach a class at uh, saint augustine of canterbury episcopal church which is actually right by jessup so it's very convenient um, working there with um, reverend annie Gennato, and that's been really wonderful so we're we're going to continue to do classes in the church but i also thought it'd be really exciting to have a space like a jessup where people can come from different places and come uh, take classes here and just again get a bit of an experience of what it looks like to dive a bit deeper into the bible than sometimes we do maybe in a, in a church context so i'm really excited about it i'll, I'll be talking about uh, opportunities for the center throughout uh, as this podcast goes along and share some of my experiences of how it's going but yeah i that's part of why i wanted to start, start this podcast is to um is to support the, the work we're doing at the center in in various ways um I want to transition over into just thinking about, and this is kind of the last thing I want to focus on or the the main thing I want to focus on is giving you a sense again, as you're kind of considering whether you want to listen to me (laughs) on a regular basis, giving you a sense of why, um, of the, of the why behind the podcast beyond the fact that, yeah, it's to support the the center for Bible study, but why have I, why have I named it on the way? And what does that, what does that look like? Um, for me in, in terms of my thinking of, of study of scripture, because that, that, that name for me has deep significance. And so I wanted to kind of take you into that a little bit and um, why I'm going in that direction. And to do that, I want to read for you a passage from Acts and then kind of just give you some reflections on it. This has become very quickly one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, um, especially when I think about what does it mean to study the Bible together? So this is a story from Acts chapter eight, and we begin in verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Philip, this is Philip the evangelist who has just um, brought the gospel to Samaria. Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship And on his way home, was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So Philip invited, uh, so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken up from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news or the gospel about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So, um, there's a lot that I love about this passage. I could probably do a whole series on it. Maybe I will at some point or do a series on acts, but, um, let me just focus on a few points here to kind of give you a sense of, again, I think what animates me when I study scripture and why this text makes me so excited. The first thing that, um, that's easy to miss about this passage, perhaps, but it's clearly, I think, something that Luke's wanting us to see is the place of the meeting that this is as you have an Acts, Constantly, the spirit is out in front of the people of God, driving, driving the people of God to places and spaces that they would not have chosen to go themselves. And that's part of the overall message of, of Acts, that mission is spirit driven and we are. If we're followers of Jesus, we are following the leading of the Spirit. Uh, we're not bringing the Spirit. We're going to places where the Spirit has always already been at work out in front of us. Um, this this encounter happens on the way, and in the in the Greek language, I mean, this is the the word "hadas" is used here in the text. Um, it can be translated a variety of ways, like road, path, all this kind of stuff, but. Uh, it has a profound significance for Luke and for the gospel tradition. If you look at the book of Acts, the primary way that the primary way <laughs> that the disciples are identified or that followers of Jesus are identified, it's not Christian. That term's used twice in Acts. Christian, by the way, is only used three times in the New Testament, twice in Acts and once in First Peter. Uh, the primary way followers of Jesus are identified is as disciples of the way. So there's something to this concept of the way, that's important to Luke. Likely it it derives from the prophecy of the one in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, which is a role that John the Baptist fills out in the gospel tradition, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. So we see this very early on. Um, You see it in the opening of Mark's gospel, and then this is taken over in Matthew and Luke in the baptism uh, account there as well. John prepares the way of the Lord. But what happens in this, Right dynamic is, first of all, what is the way of the Lord? Right In the Isaian tradition, the way of the Lord is here comes God to liberate his people, to redeem them from their time in exile, and to bring in the fullness of the promises of the covenant. So this takes up, you know, big time significance in the New Testament. The way of the Lord now becomes the way of Jesus. Um, and that's how Mark kind of frames it up for us at the opening of his gospel. Mark Uh, verse 3 is where the quotation is, Um, 1-3, the quotation of Isaiah 43. So this is really, really significant, but it also takes on a significance. So if the way of the Lord is the way of Jesus, then as you follow Jesus in the Gospels, what you find is that he's also making his journey on the way from Galilee, where he does ministry um, for about a year's period or... Following John, we have a three year ministry, but in the synoptic tradition, it focuses on one year in Galilee and then um, movement south, although you always go up to Jerusalem, uh, movement to Judea, to Jerusalem on the way, right? On the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. And what Mark does is he has this movement of on the way bracketed or sandwiched between healings of two men who are blind, who can't see. And the, the, the healing of physical sight in these two texts is really emblematic of a spiritual kind of um, apocalyptic or eye-opening thing that needs to happen for the followers of Jesus. So if you think about Peter's confession, you are the Messiah, this was some sort of revelation that God gave to him. Matthew makes this explicit, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And, um, and so Peter has this revelation, but then what we find with Peter and what we find with the rest of the disciples is that they are resistant to this way. They're resistant to the, the specifically resistant that, to that it's God's plan for the Messiah to be the crucified Messiah. And what we find in, in Mark's way section, this movement from uh, where Peter makes the confession in Caesarea Philippi down to Jerusalem, is we find the disciples they're not just resistant to a theological proposition—the Messiah has to die for your sins. They're they're resistant to the implications of what it means that we follow the crucified Messiah, right? So what happens in following the crucified Messiah is that it overturns um, how you value other people, right? It overturns who's in and who's out, who's privileged, who's not, and the disciples have a really hard time with that, right? So they're barring barring children from being with Jesus because they don't think that these ones are significant enough to be with the teacher. Um, they are telling Jesus, you know, we need to stop this guy who's casting out demons in your name because he's not one of us. Right. So he's not part of our coterie. <laughs> um, they're asking to sit in uh, places of privilege. And uh, when Jesus asks, asks the, the, the two sons of Zebedee, what do you want me to do for you? They say, Lord, we want to be on your right and your left. We want the positions of privilege. Contrast that with Bartimaeus when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus says, Lord, I want to, or teacher, I want to see. Which is really what Mark's been driving at. Like, do you see, really? Do you see now what life looks like when we understand that the God of Israel, the God of Jesus Christ works through the cross, right? So that becomes this way section. And Luke uh, reading Mark, I think, and you know, maybe he's got some other things going on, but I think Luke really likes this idea of a way section. So if you look at Luke's gospel, this way section that you have in Mark gets blown up in 951, right after they go through Samaria, which interestingly enough, like Philip on the, the, the guy that meets up with the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch here, Philip had just come out of Samaria. Uh, he was the evangelist to the Samaritans. And now he's meeting up with this, with this Ethiopian eunuch. Um, in this scene, the disciples go through Samaria and the Samaritans naturally reject Jesus. Why? Because he's going to Jerusalem. Why would you want uh, to celebrate a Jewish Messiah, a guy that's going to, to, to Jerusalem? So they reject Jesus and the disciples, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, they say, well, let's rain down fire on the Samaritans, Right. So contrast that right <laughs> with what we see now in the story with Philip going to the Samaritans. And in fact, who comes up and lays hands on the Samaritans? It's, it's Peter and it's John, one of the guys that wanted to rain down fire on the Samaritans now lays hands on the Samaritans and sees God tell the, tell him, right, tell everybody through this manifestation of the Spirit that the Samaritans are his equal brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, right? So Luke loves this, this journey of the the way motif. And right after you go through Samaria, 951 programmatic statement, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And then you go like 10 chapters of journey material before you get to Jerusalem. So all of what happens with kind of discipleship form, like forming people around this idea that Jesus is uh, counter to the way of empire, counter to the way of like hierarchy and um, and valuing people based on where they fall in the hierarchy and so on, that all happens on the journey, uh, or a lot of it I should say. I mean, you have some important texts in um, in the Galilee ministry as well, but most of it happens on the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. So this is that way motif. That's why what I get at when I when I see way language here. In the encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, it really makes me think that part of that is that it, drawing on that intentional language that the people of Jesus are the people of this way um, that they come and meet together. So if we put all that together, um, I think that the way of the Lord shows us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working through Jesus and then working in, our, in community through us, really likes to work in liminal spaces or in between spaces, spaces where we're pressed outside of our comfort zone into, into these kind of encounters spaces where our blindness is exposed to us, right? the idea with the blindness of the disciples is we're supposed to see ourselves in that we're supposed to see our own blindness and then turn and repent, turn towards Jesus and kind of live that live that way. That's uh, an ever repentant lifestyle. So, Yeah. I mean, the spirit loves to work in these in-between spaces. So this encounter between Philip and the eunuch is this kind of divine encounter brought together two unlikely uh, people coming together in this space. um, And and they're both going to, I think, learn from one another in this uh, on the journey, on the way. Right. So I love that kind of idea as like kind of as a principle of scripture study as doing it on the way, doing it together, doing it in places that bring us outside of our comfort zone um, that expose to us blindness and other things that we may be holding on to, right? And allow us to walk in repentance. So that's, that's one thing that um, this text I think points out to me. It, it, scripture study and formation happens on the way. The second is the need for community. Um, the key text here, right, or part of it the, 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 is the key question do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian eunuch says humbly, How can I unless somebody guides me? And I think that this attitude, which you see celebrated in the ancient church, by the way, I love what Jerome says about this text, that we are all like the Ethiopian eunuch, dependent on other teachers, dependent on tradition. Uh, by tradition, I mean the wider community, the larger Catholic church, both global and historic. We're, we're dependent on one another, right? We don't go at this alone. And I think that really cuts... Uh, cuts in the face of, um, or, you know, is directly opposite to the attitude we often find uh, towards the Bible in American Christianity. And I get that that's even a diverse category, but I do think that one thing our various cultural communities share in common in the United States is we're very committed to individualism, uh, to this idea of the kind of the myth of the rugged self-made man, the individual who runs off and does the work of God, me and my Bible, Right. And while I certainly believe in the importance of study of scripture uh, alone in quiet space, um, I think that's a healthy practice to have. Um, The reality is, is we don't understand (laughs) the Bible on our own and to believe that we do isn't just naive or arrogant. It's it's directly counter to the kind of formation that I think God is wanting to do in us. Uh, we need one another to understand the Bible well. And so I, I, this story for me cuts directly against the grain of uh, American individualism and this idea that, you know, it's just me and my Bible. And one of the things that I, I think also gets misunderstood in, in an American context, maybe especially in American evangelical context, is people say, yeah, but what about the um What about the concept of the clarity of scripture or the perspicuity of scripture, this idea that scripture is clear? I think that's actually a misunderstanding of the clarity of scripture. If we think by clarity of scripture, any reasonable, well-intentioned person can sit down and just read the Bible on their own. They don't need other people. Um, First of all, we know that doesn't work. We can look at the evidence. The evidence is thousands and tens of thousands of denominations. The evidence is what uh, the sociologist Christian Smith describes as pervasive interpretive pluralism. So rampant different readings of the text, all by people claiming that they're reading the text for one meaning, one clear meaning, and yet they can't agree, right? Um, But beyond that, it's a misunderstanding what the clarity of scripture is about, right? Beyond the fact that it doesn't work when you really look at it, it only works if you cloister yourself off in a community where everybody thinks like you. But the reason why it doesn't work, and it doesn't work, right? And it's a misunderstanding of the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture has to do with, first of all, the work of the Spirit to illuminate Scripture to us. So the Spirit has to be involved in that. It's not as if clarity is just a a text property isolated from the work of the Holy Spirit. The idea of a Christian reading of text, similar to Jewish readings of texts, in antiquity is the idea that both the spirit is the one that inspires the text. That means that the text, God gives the text for a reason. Doesn't necessarily mean you know the reason, but God gave you this text as God's word for a reason to communicate, to teach. Uh, That same spirit is involved in the interpretive process. right? We're not just going at it alone, right? Um, But then, okay, you could say, well, what about me and the Holy Spirit? (laughs) Um, We still need community. Right. Because part of the clarity of Scripture is the clarity that comes out as community wrestles with Scripture and is constantly part of an ongoing conversation about how to read and interpret Scripture. You can't do Bible interpretation uh, without community. Right. I, I like to remind my students that, you know, even when I hold up a Bible, I'm holding up a product of community. I'm holding up a product that came together over centuries brought together by community of faith, people that were using these texts to worship the same God that we're worshiping. Um, We're holding up a Bible that's brought together through really arduous and careful text critical work to bring together a a, a critically reconstructed text so that we can read it. So we're always reading the Bible with other people. So don't buy into the illusion that you're reading the Bible alone, but even more so, uh, community is a gift, right? It doesn't often feel that way. I mean, sometimes a lot of us maybe have been burned by community, have been burned by the church, but community broadly understood. It's a gift. We need community. And I've realized the more I've been doing my work as a Bible scholar, the more I become aware of my need for uh, for community. So I I see this text as a as really as an invitation for us to read and to learn together. right? That's that's kind of how I and I don't see right Philip isn't let's say in the privileged teacher role in the Ethiopian eunuch in the student role that that happens to be a function of Philip is an evangelist he he's already he's bringing the message but we'll see the Ethiopian eunuch goes home uh, and helps probably start uh, or at least begin to kind of the the bottom level of uh, what will become one of the, the most ancient historic churches. It's to this day, the Ethiopian church. Right. So uh, part of bringing the gospel to Africa is, is we see in this um, in this story. Um, so there's it's not as if these roles are fixed. Right. Is the idea that there's a there's a back and forth, a toing and froing a um, and there's a the reality of we're getting a snapshot of this story, right? So there could be, a, I would imagine, a lot of fruitful dialogue that took place between both of these figures. And I'd, I'd also imagine that Philip was changed and transformed through this encounter in, in various ways, right? Luke's got his narrative, he's got his certain aims, and so you know, we don't get all of that, but it's worth thinking about. It's not just a one-way street. This is an invitation to learn together. And that brings me to my last point that I think is really important in these stories Uh, I think we see this in this story. And that is that um, I think it's really important as we're reading scripture together, learning together, that we recognize ourselves as embodied readers. Right. That we recognize to be human and to embrace that our humanity is to embrace ourselves as embodied readers. We see that actually in the text as well. Again, there's a lot going on in this text. Philip, this Ethiopian eunuch, different stories, different backgrounds, and yet here they are together, two people in this chariot uh, studying scripture. One thing this story uh, teaches us, and this has long been overlooked actually by scholars, is Right, and, and actually, I'm, the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's an illustration of how our biases and our reading location always impacts how, how we read the text, what we see in the text. Scholars, Christian scholars, right, for a long time had, had kind of positioned Christianity as being this unique, universal, um, religious movement that moved away from a very ethnocentric Judaism. Um, and that, that construct informed a lot of what Scholars, Bible scholars, saw in the text of the New Testament. But that's actually a caricature and it's just factually inaccurate. And Acts is a source that kind of works against that. If you look at Acts, what you find at Pentecost is a global diverse Judaism. Luke says, Jews, you die, away, from every place under the sun who are there at Pentecost. So this idea of diasporic Jewish identity, of Jews uh, scattering some by choice, others by force um, throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, making their homes there, seeking the good of the city, showing the goodness of community, of the God of Israel. That was, that's been happening. That's what's taking place. And Luke's narrative actually shows the way that Christian mission uh, builds on that, right? It's dependent on that in some ways. So it's a, it's a gift uh, that, that's, that's there. And then, if we think in particular about this, uh, the, the eunuch, um, many scholars had assumed, oh, this guy's from Ethiopia, right? He can't possibly be a, a Jew, um, and I, I think there's probably some um, latent white supremacy, uh, honestly, behind that idea. This is a black man here, um, and uh, and so may, he must be a Gentile or something like that. Um, but in fact, if you look at Luke's narrative, the conversion of the gentiles happens in chapter 10 when peter not paul peter that's strategic for luke goes to um cornelius's house and that becomes the kind of pentecost if you will for for gentiles this happens before that there is no indication that this man uh, is not a jew he's coming back from the temple. He's reading an Isaiah scroll, uh, whether he is a Jew by birth or a proselyte, a convert, convert to Judaism. I mean, we could have a debate about that. But certainly, I think from Luke's perspective, the, the better reading is to see this Ethiopian as a Jew. So this um, encounter, this spirit inspired encounter is actually an engagement among a diverse Judaism is what I'm, I'm saying, su- suggesting, right? Um from Luke's perspective, I think it's also worth noting um, that when uh, geographers and historians in the ancient Mediterranean world wrote about kind of the the known world, Ethiopia tends to be at the ends of the earth in, in terms of their description. So if you you have in Acts, right, a trajectory of the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, this is also another way of presaging that that movement, that this is indeed where the gospel is going, right? But let, let's not miss the fact that it already testifies to the d- the diverse Judaism or Judaisms, if you like, of um, of the first century that the early Jesus movement is deeply dependent upon, engaged on, and doesn't see itself breaking away from. Um, there's debate about what it means, you know, uh, the kind of still debate that's that going on, but they see themselves as a messianic movement. Um and then, of course, again, as I mentioned, this this Ethiopian eunuch right is a reminder of the spread of the gospel, and of the fact that Africa is one of the earliest sites of Christianity. Right, um, the Ethiopian Church is, has a very, very rich tradition, um, and um, as we're thinking about now of being in a very different time in church history, a time where power, certainly church power centered in Europe, and then that was kind of brought to the rest of the world as if Christianity was kind of a European or Eurocentric religion. It's very helpful, I think, to see in the text that that is not the case and that Africa has a deep history uh, at the the bottom, the ground floor in terms of churches and um, and theological contribution to Christian uh, tradition. The other thing that I think this text really brings up for us is the question of belonging. Right. So the question of who belongs. Eunuchs um, are, uh, you know, an interesting group of people in that, on the one hand, and I mean, I had some students ask have asked me this question in class. I mean, isn't this guy kind of privileged in a way? He's reading a scroll, which is a rare thing to have scroll in your possession. He's riding a chariot. He is a court official. Uh, that sounds like a pretty well-to-do person in antiquity. And there's, there's certainly truth to that, um, you know, to be a high court official it, like this man. He has some, some distinct privileges. There's no doubt about that. But there also is the reality that um, eunuchs were mocked in antiquity. Um, they were mocked by greco roman satirists for not really conforming um, in terms of the, the male field, female binary. Right. They're neither male nor female um, in in, in some thinkers minds. And that was that was problematic. That was kind of upsetting. Um, Why? Why would that be the case? Because to become a court official, become a eunuch, typically you'd be castrated. uh, And that that ensures that you would not try to take that position. You have no way of producing and you have no way of producing an offspring that could potentially overthrow the ruler. So it makes you kind of a more loyal uh, subject, right, of that of your ruler. So eunuchs were, were mocked, made fun of, and it's interesting that the eunuch focuses on the text of humiliation of this figure and is kind of exploring the text. So the eunuch is also bringing, I would say, his embodied self to the study of this Isaiah text. And certainly uh, the text opens up to a bigger story, to the Jesus story, but isn't that the way that we all come to scripture or should, right? Being aware of our embodied selves, our questions, our, 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 um, our concerns, bringing that to the text and allowing their uh, transformation to take place and allowing our horizons to be open, but also recognizing that, um, that you know we may have questions and particular insights to bring that others in the faith community need to hear. So this, this eunuch is someone who knows kind of what it means like to be on the inside, but also on the outside, right? And then if you think about some uh, scriptural traditions, you know, there are, there's some concerns in some texts you have within some Jewish texts, a kind of more, um, exclusivist maybe mentality of kind of closing in the circle and people like the eunuch may feel like, am I really part of this community? Do I really belong with this people? And then you also have visions that are more uh, open, more kind of universal or uh, inclusive in, in terms of their trajectory. So I think that this is certainly a text that Luke has in mind here uh, that he's evoking. This is also um, part of a passage from Isaiah that, um, that Jesus quotes when he's in the temple. Um, you know, my house, my father's house, shall be a house of prayer for taethne, the the nations or the Gentiles. And uh, you've made it a den of robbers. Of course, that's from Jeremiah seven seven. So this is just before that. My house of prayer shall be a house for the the nations. Um, this is what it says in Isaiah, and it's du- uh, directly addressed to encourage the eunuch. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Do not let the eunuchs say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughter better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Okay. So um, really beautiful text, right? That's speaking to this eschatological picture of inclusion. Isaiah is looking at people who, were, who, who had good reason to feel like in the community, I don't know if I fully belong. Do I really belong here? Am I really embraced uh, by the God of Israel and by the people of Israel? And here's Isaiah saying, yes, right? In, the, in this end time, this is what's going to happen. This is what it's going to look like and it's interesting that this is also a place where Jesus picks up on when he's in the temple and when he's upset and casting out uh, the money changers so the the Ethiopian eunuch is an embodied reader right these are of course characters in the text but Philip and the eunuch they're also real people they're embodied readers they have different experiences different questions that they're bringing to the text and this is a text in in many ways uh, um, about yes understanding the gospel story but it's about inclusion and the the trajectory and the expanse of the gospel as i said we are also embodied readers and we don't necessarily have quite the same questions um that maybe the ethiopian eunuch had or that luke had um, but we can bring our questions to the text as well as allow the the text to speak uh, on its own to us right that's the kind of dynamic of interpretation or horizons if you will, the horizons of the text, the horizon of the text in our own horizon. And so when we think about our own selves as embodied readers, I just want to read for you. This is a quotation from uh, Willie Jennings commentary on Acts, which I have right here and I highly recommend to you if you want a really good commentary on Acts. uh, This is actually my favorite. He writes this, the experience of the Ethiopian eunuch has occasioned questions about his origins and his place in the unfolding uh, Christian history and the spread of Christian mission. In more recent years, the eunuch has become a focal point of seeing sexual and racial difference. Both forms of consideration are appropriate and highlight a crucial question that the church has struggled to answer. What does it mean to embrace those different from us for the sake of the gospel? The story of the Ethiopian eunuch is a story of divine compulsion. The Spirit is driving a disciple where the disciple would not have ordinarily gone and creating a meeting that without divine desire would not have happened. This holy intentionality sets the stage for a new possibility of interaction and relationship. Christians have lived inside this dynamic from the beginning of our faith and have not often been able to master its intricacies. We have more often than not sought to eradicate the differences we perceive in those new and strange to us through soul killing and life draining forms of assimilation or we have locked people in a vision of their difference that that they themselves would not have created or ascribed to if they had been given the freedom to speak for themselves now a little taste of why you definitely need Jennings's commentary right um But yeah, what is he highlighting here, right? He's highlighting this dynamic that has been a central part of the the church's story. You see it on the pages of the New Testament, which is the Spirit's desire, right? When He describes it as divine desire for different peoples to embrace one another in the Messiah Jesus. And yet the ways in which we've embraced one another or sought out to do that, I don't know if embrace is the right word, have often been... um, anti-gospel ways of doing it. It's been ways of um, of uh, undermining the image bearer-ness of other people. And so he highlights, of course, right when it comes to sexual difference and racial difference, uh, this is a text where we have a black body here um, it, it, central in the text and becoming a founding member of a black church in Africa, one of the first churches that are there. And that's um, I mean, there's a lot to reflect on uh, in that, even though we can also acknowledge that the way we see race today, uh, or, or ethnicity for that matter, is different in some ways than the ancient world. But we're br- again, we're bringing ourselves to the, to the text as embodied readers, likewise with, with, with sexuality, right? Um, the eunuch is of course, uh, or I should say the way that ancients saw sexuality, very, very different in some ways than the way uh, we see sexual identity today, and yet, These are spaces where we can enter into these uh, enter into conversations in fruitful ways that involve listening carefully to scripture, listening carefully to one another. The big difference, of course, that Jennings is getting at here is how right? do we really do how do you really honor the other person? Right. Um, Is the is the goal to kind of create some sort of assimilation to some standard? Or is the goal truly to embrace difference in community? Right? And that's something that we have struggled with as Christians and man, are we struggling with it today? Right? How do we, how do, we do life in a way that every image bearer feels, uh, and, and not just feels, but is um, valued, is honored, is allowed to bring their gifts to the table Right, That is something that is deeply, I think, central for God's mission in the church. And it's something that we really need to focus on, because if we are interested in the health and wellness of the church and we don't have a robust anthropology, meaning we don't think really about what it means to be human and we can't speak to the various facets of our humanity, our faith is going to be more or less irrelevant, I think, to a lot of. People, especially younger generations that are uh, growing up facing facing these questions among others so I've got a little mantra for you to close off here this is for me this is the mantra of an embodied reader um, things that I remind myself in my own embodiedness as a reader um, and why am I focusing on this this is something that I'll, I'll definitely cover more in another podcast or maybe do a series on um, but I focus on embodiedness and I also use the term faithful interpretation rather than right interpretation because I realize that I come from a faith tradition, at least when I started becoming more serious about my faith, that the faith tradition that that um, tried to erase difference right, by not acknowledging it, that uh, that tries to presents the interpretation of the Bible as being basically just a matter of a, a brain in a vat <laughs> right uh, a non-embodied self extracting a principle or set of principles from an inspired text and then just applying that to life and i don't think that model of interpretation works i don't think it does justice to the complexity of what it means to be human and i also don't think it does it does it does service to the 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 beauty and the intricacies of of god's word so that's why I focus on embodiment because uh, I actually believe that God wants us to be our embodied selves. I think that scripture supports that. And, um, and I focus on faithful interpretation rather than right interpretation because I think it's possible in many cases to have m- many right interpretations of the text um, depending on the questions we're asking and the perspectives that we're looking at it from. So my mantra of an embodied reader, step number one is the confession. I am not God. I am not God. Now that may feel very self-evident to you, but the reality is, is we often try to treat the Bible as if we are God, as if we can somehow arrive at a certainty on all of our questions, as if we can know reality the way that only God knows. And um, it's interesting, isn't it, that the chap- the third chapter of our Bible, which we often call the fall of humanity, was all about a grasping after knowledge that humans were not supposed to have yeah interesting that we keep grasping after certainty or we we focus on just kind of holding on to our ideas that oftentimes are just based on keeping us safe and keeping us closed in from harder questions so i am not god and um i'm not going to pretend to be i'm going to embrace that i'm not god i am a creature this is number two i'm a creature wonderfully made in God's image. Um, recognizing that I'm not God allows me the freedom then to discover what it means to be truly human, a creature created in God's image. I'm a worshiper because I'm a creature. My calling is to worship God and, and, uh, and through that to love God, love my neighbor. That's how I worship. And so that's, that's what I bring to the table when it comes to reading. I'm, a, I'm an image bearer and a creature. And then the, the the corollary to that, number three, is as an image bearer, I have an incredible blessing of learning about the wonderful diversity of God's image. Because God's image is wonderfully diverse, male and female. Uh, that is the, our humanity together. We image God. So I have an opportunity to learn about the wonderful diversity of God's image, of God, through reading scripture with my fellow image bearers. Right? So I... I love reading scripture with others because I really believe that I need other voices and I need other voices of people that see the world different than me, that have had different experiences than I've had, people from other parts of the world, people who uh, come from um, communities that have been marginalized, historically marginalized. Um, I'm a man, I want to hear how women see the text, how different kind of women see the text, how children see the text, how people with various disabilities see the text. That's like, I I, I just love um, getting into spaces and being in places where I can hear from different voices and allow the spirit to speak through that collective um, um, witnessing to the, the wonderful diversity of God. So I'm not God, I am a creature made in God's image and I have the wonderful privilege of learning about god's rich diversity through reading scripture with fellow image bearers so that's what it means for me um, when you're wondering why did i name this on the way that's what it means for me to read the bible on the way means to read scripture in community uh, read scripture in places that stretch me um, that 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 are going to expose and open to me uh, places for growth as well as places of encouragement Um, and then within this community I bring myself my gift is I come as an embodied reader and my gift to others is also to invite them to come as embodied readers and I think if we could all embrace that mentality of seeing our brothers and sisters as gifts because let's be honest we don't always see other people as gifts and there are times when I don't act like a gift and a blessing will to be frank but I want to be I want to be a gift and a blessing to other people and I want to see them as gifts and blessings and affirm them in that and so that's what I mean by reading scripture on the way. And I hope you'll join me. This is the first of many episodes. I'm really looking forward to see where this is going. And frankly, I'm kind of doing this with, with hands open, um, seeing where it will go. And I look forward to journeying together. <music>